Greetings, Father Martin. It's uh, great to have you with us today. Good to be with you. Thank you. You know, there's something really fascinating about your life journey. And while there is so much to talk about, some of your reflections and teachings around prayer, I want to start just a little bit with your personal journey. I was struck by how you have traversed, in a sense, that whole distance between the kind of life that many of our listeners live in the world, a life you know, with great aspirations and ambitions, you know, storied in terms of his academic and professional accomplishments. You went to University of Pennsylvania and did a you know, bachelor's in business, and then you were at GE for a while. And then here you are as Father Martin. So how did that transformation occur and what impelled you to do that? Well, as you said, I went to uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, and I enjoyed it. Like, you know, a lot of your listeners, I found it fascinating. I took a job with GE, formerly Great Company, and uh, in the 1980s, and it was a very exciting time. I was a, I was a yuppie, right? I mean, I was the, the classic yuppie. I was making a lot of money and uh, a lot of nice suits and was going out a lot. And I took a job uh, also at uh, GE Human Resources and GE Capital, another big powerhouse in the 80s. And gradually, I just felt that I was in the wrong place. Uh, really, no one had ever asked me growing up or at Wharton, certainly not, what do you want to do with your life? What are you meant for? I mean, it was all about, you know, I got a great business education at Wharton and I don't want to downplay it, but no one really said, what do you think you're made for? It was more about kind of getting, trying to earn as much money as possible. That was the goal. That was the kind of you know, the, the plum. And eventually I realized that that just wasn't doing it for me. And so one day I came home and turned on the TV and there was a documentary about uh, Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk. And that got me thinking about doing something else. And that led to the Jesuits. So it was kind of push out of GE and also a pull into, uh, for me, something that was more meaningful. Yeah, so beautiful. You've used these expressions. What do you want to make of your life? What do you want it to be about? And mm -hmm. um, like, who are you? Who are you who meant are to you? be? And who are you meant to become? And no yeah. one had really ever asked me that at Wharton. Wow. A lot of the Wharton and Columbia Business School, for example, speak would be more about what do you want to do? <laughs> you know, what do you want to achieve? <laughs> well, and yeah, and as my novice director used to say, we're not human doings. Right. I remember I went to Wharton. I was invited to give a talk on vocation. And I said, are you sure you want me to talk? And I said uh, to the group, it was the executive MBA program. I said, uh, you know, the question is, who are you called to be? Who are you? What are you called to do? And one of the best questions is, what would you do if you could do anything you wanted to do? And I remember people came up to me afterwards. You know, these are all professionals. I know you deal with people like this. And they said, no one's ever asked us that. You know, it was all about how can you make the most money and work, you know, maximize this and bottom line. And there are other measures. And so that's and I'm not saying, look, for a lot of people, business is their vocation. I mean, a lot of my friends are in business and that's a vocation, but not if you don't want to do it and not if it's not what you're made for. Yeah. You talk about Thomas Merton and it reminds me of a conversation I had here at Intersections with Father Phil Jackson at Trinity Church. And uh, mm -hmm. he's got a beautiful story. You know, you're probably familiar. And he had his Thomas Merton moment as well and his transformation moment as well. And some like you've had something in common in terms of not like one would have expected that you would have come from a family deeply steeped in prayer and church from a very young age. And uh, actually, it was like a moment in your early youth, right, that got you fully sparked. Yeah. And like most people and probably like most of your listeners, I didn't grow up in a super religious family. I mean, we were Catholic and we went to mass most Sundays. I went through all the sacraments, but I didn't go to a Catholic school. I didn't go to a, I certainly didn't go to a Catholic college. Penn is not a Catholic college. It's not a religious place. It's probably the least religious of all the Ivies, you know, in terms of its founding and its ethos. And so I had some, you know, what I would call religious experiences as a boy and as a young person, but everyone does. I think that they're just not encouraged to look at it that way. They're, they're people, they don't have the language to talk about it that way, most people. 
But, you know, these days, many people enter uh, the religious orders without a whole lot of background in the Catholic faith and not having grown up in this super religious family. And so it's actually pretty common to not have like come from this super religious, super pious family. Yeah. I remember this moment. I was a teenager, probably in my late teens and in high school, and I was at an ashram in India and something really profound happened. And I told my parents, like, you guys go back home. I don't want to go. I, mm. I want to stay here because I'm feeling a stirring. I, I think I need mm. to just be here. You know, I, I don't mm-hmm. know for the foreseeable future. And then they convinced me that, you know, there were exams coming up and high school graduation happening and all that. And I should probably just come back with him. And, I, I, you know, they were more persuasive than my inner dog at that time. And then it was another, like, almost 18 years later that I finally got a really stronger pull to want to deepen, in a sense, my spiritual practice and, you know, get very serious about, you know, the search for God and all that. Well, I think you're pointing out two things that are very important. One, that people do have these experiences and that they need to be encouraged to talk about them, right? So at least your parents didn't say, that was baloney, you know, that never happened. But two, I think more is the forces that push against, you know, following that kind of path, right? Like where might that have led? And, you know, because we all have practical concerns, we all have to eat, right? We all have to make a living. And it was the same in my family. I mean, my parents said, look, you know, you get a job and, you know, if you want to get a job, Wharton's a good place to go. And, and so gradually it dawned on me that, you know, as I said, I was not in the right place. And so it took a while though. It took a while to kind of realize that and and understand what else is out there basically, because I didn't have a whole lot of background on that. I could have told you all the different ways that you could go into finance. But as far as like living a spiritual life, I had no clue. Well, one of the trends that it takes to do something like that is the capacity to be a little bit, if not above, at least, you know, beside the fray, pull away from the expectations and norms, you know, of the people around you who may consider that to be quite a radical, you know, pivot that you're making. How do you think you had that clarity and courage to be able to say like all these folks at Wharton and everything, and I'm going to, I'm you know, or, or a GE. And I'm, I'm going to move in a different direction. Yeah. And including Wharton, because all my Wharton friends were appalled. Most of my GE friends thought I was crazy. I mean, literally crazy. Like you should go to see a psychologist or whatever. You know, that's a great question. I don't think it was that I had a whole lot of strength and a whole lot of uh, an ability to, to sort of like, you know, buck the trends. I don't think that was it. I was just so miserable that I just thought I can't stand this any longer. And so I wish I were the kind of person who said, oh, this is what I'm called to do. And I don't care what anybody else said. I was really upset that people didn't understand it. And I wanted people to like me and approve of me. But I was just so miserable in my job. And I thought, I can't can't continue this any longer. And I saw this opportunity, which was to join the Jesuits, that just seemed so beautiful and kind of romantic almost, right? I mean, this kind of, you know, you're talking about the ashram and there's a romance there. There's a kind of pull, a desire. I see you smiling. And I think that's one way that God has of calling us to use more explicit religious language. God calls us through our desires and what we're attracted to. And this is what I was attracted to. And I followed it. But I, I I, wasn't very independent. It was more that I was just miserable and needed a way out. Yeah. I was smiling because, um, you know, oftentimes one envisions the monastic life for faith to be one of sacrifice and austerity and all of that. But to use words like romance, you know, to make it uh, really be about the richness, you know, <laughs> that, that it brings. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's just beautiful. I always say that in terms of vocations, vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. It's a call. It's a pull. And the way that God calls us to vocations, I believe, is through attractions. And so, for example, someone might go into business because they find it interesting. They're attracted to it or law or teaching or, or the arts. Right. 
for me, religious life was what pulled me. And that's this is how God draws us. And this is one of the things I talked about, as I said, when I was with these Wharton uh, students, uh, which was, you know, what do you feel attracted to? What draws you? What do you what are you in love with? What sort of sparks you? And for many, it's business, which is great. But for yeah. a lot of people, it's not. And so they have people have to be open to that as well. There is one other dimension to you, which I want to open up for our audience. And that is your interest in theater. Can you speak a little bit about sort of how you connect that with your vocation as well? Well, I have to say, unlike probably a lot of your listeners, I'm not as much of a theater buff as others. I don't have a lot of money, so I can't go to the theater. But I worked with a a theater troupe about 15 years ago called the Labyrinth Theater Company. The playwright, Stephen Adley Girgis, who later won the Pulitzer Prize, was writing a play on Judas and whether or not Judas should be held responsible for the betrayal of Jesus. It was called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. Philip Seymour Hoffman was the director. There was, you know, Sam Rockwell played Judas. It was fascinating. And in this book, uh, A Jesuit Off-Broadway, I talk about my involvement in that process. They eventually made me a part of the acting company, which still makes me laugh. I've never really, I've never acted. And it invited me into a a different kind of vocation, right? I mean, that's a vocation as well, the the acting vocation. I'll tell you a story. I was asked to be an advisor on the film Doubt. I don't know if you remember that film that came out a couple of years ago with Meryl Streep and Phil Hoffman. And I was on the set to, you know, like advise and whatnot. And I remember seeing a scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman was acting from the pulpit as a priest. People don't know the story. He's a priest. And Meryl Streep was in the congregation as a nun. She's a daughter of charity. Anyway, long story short, I was watching them on the monitor. So I could see Phil sort of in the sacristy and I could see him preaching live. And then I saw Meryl Streep's face in the monitor and they were transformed into these characters. And I remember thinking as I sat there, this is their vocation. Like these are two people who have found their vocation. They are actors. And I just thought this is a great and an unusual for me, experience of seeing what vocation means. They are called to this. They're good at it. They've decided to devote their lives to it and they're flourishing. So was it really kind of, I learned so much from that theater company, you know, about the spiritual life. Wow, that's beautiful. One thing I'm really valuing in what you're saying is how even though you have your vocation, you're not necessarily recommending that that's the vocation for everyone. And it reminds me of this uh, quote from uh, my spiritual teacher, Master Yogananda. You know, he talks about how he says spirit is in so many ways, you know, hard to contain in any finite source. And so it's unified on the inside, but it expresses itself in infinite ways on the outside. And in some ways, each of us is a unique spark, you know, of that. So this idea that everyone has a certain vocation waiting for them to discover, you know, as to what their their own personal path is going to be is, is a beautiful way of thinking about it. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. I look at it the same same way, which is also that God meets us where we are in different ways. And the way that we experience God is different. And so it's not surprising that that God would sort of draw people to different things. I mean, look, everyone is not drawn to the priesthood and religious orders. There'd be no, there'd be no children. That would be a bad, yeah. that would be a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's not for everybody, but it is for some people. But yeah, you're right. The, the spirit expresses itself in many different ways. And yet it's the same spirit. Uh, which is yeah, quite beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're open to it, Jim, I'd love to have us move into a conversation about prayer. Of course. Um, I know it means a lot to you, as I so joyfully discovered when I was browsing you know, at the Barnes & Noble uh, in my neighborhood the other day. And yeah, I found this beautiful book that you've written recently, Learning to Pray. And um, I was looking for something, a language, a, a format of contemplation that I can bring to the classroom, you know, to mm-hmm. the students I teach at Columbia Business School, because I'm seeing increasingly so a deeper hunger, a deeper hunger than purely, for example, you know, of course, the outer, you know, accoutrements of business, 
but also a deeper hunger than purely the socio-emotional learning kind of movement that has come out, which is a beautiful movement, you know, and it's really advanced our appreciation and understanding about the invisible inner life that is so ultimately impactful in everything that we are about but the spiritual core of who we are. And I found in your writing and reflections on prayer just so much of relevance and so much of salience and currency to today's time. So yeah, I think uh, for our viewers as well, I mean, this is what's going to be a focus for the next 15, 20 minutes or so if you're open to it, Jim. Of course. Happy to talk about prayer. <laughs> yeah, great. One of the things that really struck me is how broadly you create this invitation for people to, you uh, know, broad in two senses. One is that it's not just for men and women of God, so to say, you know, mm -hmm. who have like a deep faith. But but you're also embracing the agnostics. Yeah. I think, you know, there has to be a certain base interest in, in God. I mean, I think you can be a seeker, you can be agnostic, you can be curious. I think for the atheist who says there's no God at all, I'm not going to admit to that. I'm not, you know, I think prayer would be difficult. But I think most people are curious, at least. And so the subtitle of the book is really important, uh, A Guide for Everyone. It really is meant for everyone, because I believe that everyone is called to be in a relationship with God. And People might say, well, how do you know that? Well, I think because all of us have a sort of deep down desire for more, to know more. There's a sense of incompletion in our lives. We all feel like that. There's, you know, is, is that all there is? Uh, the great line from uh, St. Augustine, you know, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord, I think really gets at that. So so the book really is for everybody. I mean, I'm, I don't make any apologies for being a Christian or being a Catholic, but it's, you know, God is bigger than religions. And so... I think, uh, you know, you can say that everyone is called to prayer, no matter who they are. The other thing that you do is also highlight how there are instinctually ways in which people are mm -hmm. connecting with a higher power that mm -hmm. they may not have termed as prayer. But when you think about it, fundamentally, it's the same kind of dynamic going on. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I talk about, I think, nine or 10 ways that people pray unawares. And, you know, for example, you see something that's beautiful. You stop and pause and it, it sort of works itself on you, a sunset or a leaf in autumn. And you just it feels like there's something more going on and you start start wondering about it. You know, that's the beginning of prayer. Or you feel a desire to to connect with God or to connect with something more. That's a desire for prayer. Uh, or you start talking to God, help me. You start thinking about, you know, like the universe, you know, like is the universe, where does this come from and where does creation come from? So all these ways of sort of wondering and pondering and, and being in awe and noticing beauty, they're all ways of beginning to pray. Or you just have an experience that is sort of out of proportion to what you're expecting. And again, I think um, one of my favorite comments is from a Jesuit friend of mine who died very young a couple of years ago. His name was Bob Gilroy. And I, I really love this. I didn't quote him in the book. I wish I had. He said that people have these experiences all the time, as we talked about your experience, uh, but they're not encouraged to talk about them. And and so people might have these experiences, but they might, oh, I was just being emotional or, or there's no one to kind of give them the language to talk about it. And so, you know, at the beginning of the book, I wanted to say that we, we do have these experiences and, and part of it is just noticing them when they happen. I, I love that part. The path to prayer, you know, the other thing I find very distinctive in, in your work is how you don't really define it in terms of any one single kind of teaching or approach, but you open us up to just so many different uh, ways in which we can be drawn to making that connection. In fact, folks, you know, if you haven't seen this book, I really encourage you to pick it up. It's a lifelong gift to give yourself. You'd want to go back to it from time to time and reread, re-reflect and apply, you know, many of the principles that you see here. But Jim, 
I feel like I'm a kid in a candy store. You know, there's just like so many so chapters many. with so many different treatments and so many different pathways to prayer. We're probably not going to be able to do justice to all of them in the confines of the time we have. But like, maybe we just talk about two or three of your favorites and maybe a couple of my favorites. Yeah, sure. The first thing is to say that, you know, prayer is like a personal relationship with God. And that means that as in any relationship, you know, people are going to relate to God in different ways. Like you relate to friends in different ways. There's not one way to relate to a friend. And, uh, you know, I think one of my favorite ways to pray is called Ignatian contemplation, where you imagine yourself in scripture scenes and you place yourself imaginatively in a gospel scene and basically see what comes up. You know, what kind of insights, emotions, desires, feelings come up as ways that God has of communicating. Now, most people say, oh, well, that's ridiculous. I'm just making things up in my head. But no, it's using your imagination right, to allow God to enter and to allow God to sort of raise insights. I find that's one of my, I prayed that way this morning. I think it's sort of one of the most helpful ways to pray. And then for a lot of people who say, oh, that's too much, I don't like to think about all that content and imagining things. And there is centering prayer, which is very simple. And it's essentially using a prayer word, or you could say a mantra, like God or love or Jesus to just center yourself and sort of experience God's presence, right? And it's just a prayer of quiet. And so that is not to say that centering prayer is the only way to pray or Ignatian contemplation is the only way to pray, but there are two ways that appeal to two, you know, I would say different kinds of people. And that's fine, you know, as long as you sort of feel like you're encountering God. So yeah, what, what would you say? What, what kinds of prayers uh, jumped out at you? The um, centering prayer is very close mm. to my own, like pull, you know, from within. Sure stillness, experiencing some sense of your consciousness, stilling the thoughts and a sense of just deep boundless feeling, you know, a mm -hmm. feeling of love, a feeling of joy, peace, uh, you mm -hmm. know, from within, and then seeing what emerges, you know, in that moment, in that interplay between the divine and one's human form. So, yeah, which is a very, I mean, it's a very common and it's a very simple way to pray. I think particularly, you know, during the pandemic and, you know, for a lot of your listeners who are so busy, I think centering prayer can be a real break for them too. Yeah. I find a lot of times when people are busy, they don't want to pray with a lot of images and words and phrases and reading things. They just want to be quiet. And that is a way that God has of being with you, right? I mean, if, if you're stressed and, you know, a friend of yours might say, let's just take a walk. And it may not be very sort of verbal. In fact, when I was writing this book, I sent it to some readers and we talked about the image of silence in prayer as, um, you know, God just kind of walking silently uh, beside us. And I, I always find that when people read the books, they add really great things. And I said it would be like taking a walk on a beach with a friend. Right. And this person, I forget who it was, added, yes. And in some cases, words would seem out of place. <laughs> like, imagine you're looking at a beautiful sunset or you're seeing going through the mountains and your friend keeps saying, wow, isn't this beautiful? Look at that tree over there. Look at that. Great. Boy, that sure is pink. You know, that sunset. You would want to say, shut up. And so, in other words, it's the same with God. Sometimes you just want to be in God's presence. And that's fine. And that's that's more than fine. That's that's one thing that God might want to give you just that quiet, right? And that peace and that calm, especially in the middle of a busy life. So again, it's not to say that it's better or worse. It's just to say that it's a different way of experiencing God's presence in your life. Yeah. One of the things that really value in how you approach this topic is that, I think, you know, sometimes we assume that uh, any of these uh, spiritual practices are things that we have to retrofit, you know, add on top of who we are. But mm. you're often in this book helping us see that it's our most natural state. It is. Uh, and I, yeah, we're naturally drawn to prayer. 
because we're drawn to prayer and we are naturally spiritual beings. And again, there's that longing of people doubt that they, the, everyone on this who's listening knows that there is this longing for something more like what else is there? What's the meaning? What's the purpose? Is this all there is? And that longing is for God. And that longing draws us into relationship with God if we let it, right? I mean, if we, if we're open to it, some people yeah. are not open to it for different reasons, but yeah. And that means that we relate to God in different ways because we're all unique people and God relates to us in different ways, which is fine. Yeah. You know, I realized uh, I got so enthused about wanting to have us start talking about these different paths to prayer that I didn't do justice to the mathematician in me. I, I was I was really passionate about math when I was in college. And one of the things I see you do in this book, which is, is beautiful, is um, upfront, really have us just take pause and define prayer. I mean, mm -hmm. something so otherwise well exposed, you know, to all of us. And let's pause and let's define it. And you, you've got these beautiful definitions, Jim. Can I read out a couple of them? Uh, yeah, feel free. Yeah, each of them yeah, was, each yeah. of them sort of sh 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 sheds a little light on prayer. Yeah. So there's one by St. John. Prayer is the raising of one's mind and heart to God or the requesting of good things from God. Mm -hmm. Then you have from St. Therese. For me, prayer is a surge of the heart. It is a simple look turned toward heaven. It is a cry of recognition and of love, embracing both trial and joy. Mm -hmm. I thought that was beautiful. There's the one by St. Teresa. Mental prayer is nothing else than a close sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. So that was beautiful. And mm -hmm. then um, you have this one that you said has been very helpful to you. Prayer is a personal relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the one which I think you like to use for your mm -hmm. definition, maybe you can share that. Yeah, prayer is a conscious conversation with God. And so, you know, um, thanks for reading those. Uh, the, the first two by St. John Damascene and Therese are very much what we're doing. You know, they're, they're, you know we're raising our minds and heart to God. St. Therese does the surge of our heart, but it leaves the, open the question, well, what's God doing? <laughs> what is God doing when we're praying? And that's why when you start with uh, Teresa Avila, she talks about a mutual sharing between friends. And then there's another one by a fellow named Walter Burkhardt, a Jesuit, who said that prayer is a long, loving look at the real, like sort of contemplating the real. The one that you mentioned by Father Bill Barry, uh, prayer as a personal relationship, has really helped me. We've been talking about that obliquely in the sense that God relates to us in different ways. And also the great analogy is that the kind of things that we can say about a good relationship with a friend, we can say about a good relationship with God. So you know, a good relationship requires time, right? You spend time with the person. Honesty, you have to be honest with the person. Listening, right? I talk in the prayer about what it means to, in the book about what it means to listen in prayer, what kinds of things happen and what kinds of things come up. But I sort of put them all together in this idea of a conscious conversation. It is conscious. I mean, you have to be sort of attentive to God. Uh, yeah. And it's a conversation. It's a back and forth. That doesn't mean we hear voices or see visions, but it does mean that, you know, we express ourselves and that God, you know, is expressed through our daily lives. And, and as I said, some of the fruits of prayer, which I talk about more in the book, that definition has really helped me. It has to be mutual. Yes. In fact, I was talking to someone just the other night who said that when he sits down to pray, he, you know, he just sort of runs through a list of what he wants to say to God. And I said, well, you need to kind of listen a little bit too. It can't just be a one-way street. Uh -huh. I love that. You know, sometimes I like to uh, just visualize how, just like we have these like, I guess, radio signals, you know, everywhere, mm -hmm. but we are just not configured to receive and process them and hear, you know, but there's so much sound and visual information that is out there that God is also broadcasting to us all the time. It's just that we need to develop that antenna, you know, through which we can. Yeah, that's in. a great, that's a great idea. We have to have an antenna. We have to tune in to, first of all, we have to turn the radio on. 
we have to sit down and be attentive and listen, right? I mean, if you can be listening to, they could be broadcasting stuff and your radio's off. If you don't want to listen to it at all. You have to tune in. You have to really notice. And you also, you know, once the radio station is on, it's actually a great analogy. I wish I had had that in the book. Once the radio station is on, you have to really pay attention. You have to pay attention. It can't just, you know, that that's actually a great analogy because if you're listening to, let's say something on NPR, I listen to NPR a lot. And, you know, it's something that's complex about some political thing. First of all, you have to have the radio on. You have to be listening sort of physically, but you also have to be paying attention. Like, what, what are they talking about? And so a lot of that is about the spiritual life. Like, what's going on in my life? You know, where am I seeing? But you have to be open. Yeah. So these are very interiorized kinds of forms of prayer. Mm-hmm. And um, since you have opened us up to prayer in a very broad sort of frame, I'm curious about what you can share with the listeners about the, in a sense, like the outer way of attuning yourself to God, right? And mm-hmm. your relationship with life. And um, I'm just reminded of a story from ancient times. It's like a parable, you know, so there's mm-hmm. this guy who's very devout. And so he's walking on the street in India and suddenly there is this man rushing towards him from the other side and says, watch out, there's a mad elephant, you know, that is rushing our way. And the man just says, God will protect me. And he just keeps going, intrepid. And then, you know, five more people are rushing towards him, desperation, saying, watch out, watch out, this is mad elephant. You know, and again, he says, God will save me. And another big crowd comes and continues to say that. They're all running the opposite way. He's walking ahead. And then the mad elephant comes and just like beats him up. <laughs> you know, and he's left like all, you know, shaken and wounded. And at some point he's asking his mentor, like, what happened? Like, you know, God was supposed to save me in that moment. And they said, who do you think these people were who came to you? That was the voice of God. <laughs> That's a great, I've heard that joke about a guy who's trapped in a, his house is on there's a flood coming and that there's the same joke uh told us yeah exactly you know and where is god you know and you have to be attentive you have to be paying attention and one of the things i talk about in the book is a prayer called the examination of conscience which is basically a review of the day you look back and see where god was and for the person who's seeing with eyes of faith you know there's a lot of places where god is active now that doesn't mean that i always like to say i like to quote a friend of mine who says that not every leaf that falls in front of you is a sign from god right you can't say every single thing that happened is some great but you know but some things are and i think that by being open and noticing we can attune ourselves more to where god is present in our lives in both as you were saying interiorly but also exteriorly i really believe that god is you know, speaks to us very powerfully. But again, we're not encouraged to notice that. It's just like, I love that. I love that story. It's so funny. Like, you know, the, yeah, that God is kind of trying to communicate through these people and we're not listening. And that's on us. You just brought up the examination of consciousness. And um, that's got to be one of my favorite, you know, forms yeah. of prayer that I, I got introduced to it, um, Jim, a few years ago, as I was teaching my class at Columbia, one of my students, you know, Daniel Dixon is from the Jesuit, you know, faith mm-hmm. as well, and was being trained into his own kind of monastic path. And, mm-hmm. and so he brought it up to me, he says, Atendra, you should look at this prayer, because it may have some applications. I looked at it. And then later, more recently, I've read it in your book. And um, actually, I'm convinced that with a little bit of perhaps like adaptation for those who may not immediately relate to the concept of God, that there is so much power in just um, offering that as a structured Mm -hmm. daily form of introspection. Absolutely. Talk about that one. Sure. I'm glad that Dan Dixon introduced you to it. It's uh, Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, popularized it. I wouldn't say that he invented it, but it's a very simple prayer. It's a review of the day. And the idea is that we need to take time to pause and look at the day and look to see where God was, because most of us, and I'm sure most of us on this 
podcast, you know, are very action oriented, task oriented people. And once the day is done, it's like, okay, on to the next day, you know, what's bring up the next, you know, to do list. They look at, you know, you look at your calendar for the next day. The examination asks us to slow down usually at the end of the day. And it's a very simple prayer. It's five steps. It's the first is you place yourself in God's presence. So you know that it's not just a monologue, right? Which is what we do in every prayer. Next is gratitude. You call to mind the things you're grateful for. Small things, right? I mean, uh, happy news from a friend. You talk to a friend. Uh, you got something accomplished at work. You know, something good happened to your family. It was a beautiful day outside. You went to the gym and it worked out well. You went to a good restaurant. You know, small things. You thank God for them and you kind of savor them. The next step is a review of the day where you go through the day, morning, noon, and night, and you try to remember where you experience God, right? I mean, again, in, in small ways. Then the next step is, uh, you know, looking at your failings and places where you might have sinned. I mean, we're all imperfect, right? And seeking a desire to, you know, improve. And then the next step is asking God for the grace for the next day. It really, really helps to get your spiritual life in order. And I think what happens is when you're able to look back and notice, uh, then it makes it easier to see God in the next day. It makes it easier to see God because you're aware and you're attentive and you're awake, basically. So it's really, it's a prayer of noticing, a prayer of being awake and a prayer of awareness, which I, I think it's probably one of the most helpful prayers. And it's very simple for people to do. It's, it's a very simple prayer. You don't have to have a whole lot of training in any sort of spirituality. Yeah. How long would you typically recommend someone to, you know, dedicate for a prayer like this? Good question. I'm glad you asked that. 15 minutes. It's very short. You know, we're not talking about an hour at the end of the day. Very short. A lot of people do it right before they, I do it before I go to bed. That's what I do the last thing before I kind of climb into bed and start reading. Yeah. And it's really, you know, because what happens is we also tend to focus on the negative in life. I just heard a, something on the radio or a podcast, a social psychologist said that, which makes sense, called it the power of bad. In terms of our evolution, we are hardwired, as you probably know, to look for the risk because, you know, I mean, the caveman or cave woman who is staring at the stars or looking at the sunset, you know, he's not, he's the one who's going to get eaten by the saber toothed tiger. The one who's always looking for a risk, we're hardwired that way. We notice things, we notice movement. And so in our spiritual lives, sometimes we only notice the bad things. We only focus on the problems, things to be solved. And we don't take time to reflect on things we're grateful for. It's just not in our DNA. And so it's a kind of sort of forces us to do that. And because, you know, if you're not grateful for what's around you, you become bitter. St. Ignatius Loyola said, which I love, I think I put it in the book, ingratitude is the worst, the most abominable and the origin of all sin, which is pretty strong. Wow, that is powerful. I was putting myself in the shoes of the more analytical of our mm -hmm. listeners. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking in this examination of consciousness, mm -hmm. the daily examine, there is a risk that some of them might assume that they are meant to painstakingly go through every moment of the day, right. <laughs> you know, and all of that. Can you weigh in on that? Because I yeah. found it so liberating, but also very enlightening to realize that actually this prayer is tapping more the intuitive faculty more than the yeah. analytical faculty. What a great way of saying that. That's a really wonderful way of saying it. And you're right. There would be for the people who are also perfectionists. Oh my gosh, I've missed something. Well, part of it is, is trusting that God's going to kind of help you with this prayer. That's one of the reasons you place yourself in God's presence, or I would say call to mind God's presence is a better way of saying it. And so it's not just you. It's trusting that God is going to raise these things up. So that sort of can free you from this 
almost obsessive need to look at every single moment of the day. So you're not going to do it perfectly, but you trust that God's going to help you and God's going to point out things to you that that you might have noticed. But so there's a balance. That's a great thing. There's a balance. You have to work on your own. You can't just sit there and expect things are, are going to come up. You have to remember the day. But it's not just you, that there is that partnership, right? It's God's going to be helping you. And so I, I usually remind people to kind of take a little lightly, but to trust that God's going to raise these things up. For example, oftentimes I do the exam and I rush through it and it's just a kind of list of things. I did this, I did this, I did this. And I say, wait a minute, I'm not really, I'm not really kind of inviting God into this. And once I say to God, like, all right, will you show me places that I've missed? I almost always, something always happens. Yeah. The other thing I, I really find powerful in it for those people who are drawn to investing in their own personal growth, you know, from a day-to-day standpoint, which, you know, as you know, as much as me, that is uh, quite in fashion today. I mean, there is a fair amount of interest around, like, how do you break out of bad habits and how, how do you mm. change and how, how do you grow and a whole science is emerging on this well one of the things in the science is this notion of daily deliberate practice and i see a little bit of that in this prayer because in that final step you're actually thinking about you know what's coming tomorrow and mm. you're being a little bit more planful about it you're also asking for god's help but you're approaching the day with a little bit more intentionality than perhaps we might otherwise if we just go through the emotions of life absolutely and if you know at night that you're going to be doing the examine you're more aware of the things that are going on. You're just in a stance of noticing all the time. And so that's going to make you much more aware of, you know, perhaps areas in your life that you need to approve on. Ignatius also has something called, which I don't think I put in the book, the particular examine. And so you focus on one particular aspect of your life. And so let's say I'll make something up. You're, let's say you're a workaholic. I mean, I, I would say that's probably more likely than a, a lazy person for your listeners. If you're a workaholic and you never take any breaks, you know, Ignatius would say, do an examine where you're focusing on all the breaks you took and all the times that you were able to rest and the times that you weren't a perfectionist. And, and that could also get our minds in order. That's a very specific kind of examine. But, but even the regular examine uh, can help us notice patterns where we need that we need to address. And over time, you can see how you've gotten better. Yeah, there's something you said there, which I want to make sure doesn't skip the notice of our listeners. You were speaking not merely to the impact we can have and using examine today for benefiting ourselves tomorrow, but you're also saying that knowing that you're going to do the examine, mm-hmm. you know, at night mm-hmm. will put you into a different right. consciousness through the day. Yeah. You know, so for example, if you know that you are going to be looking at your day with God, every moment of the day is an opportunity to express your relationship with God. I mean, we would hope that we would do that, you know, in a sort of moral sense. But, you know, among Jesuits, there's always a there's always a joke sometimes if you do something that's, um, you know, like ungenerous or you make some snide remark, Jesuits will always say, oh, that's going to come up in your examine tonight. Oh, <laughs> you know? wow. wow. So there's, oh, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, it's, it's good. It's good to have that as well as something that's wonderful and beautiful. I often say to myself, boy, when I, I, I'm very drawn to nature. You know, if I see some beautiful scene in nature, I say, oh my gosh, this is definitely going to be one of the things I'm grateful for tonight in my exam. And that's very wow. common among Jesuits or people who know that spirituality. They'll say, boy, this is going to be, I'm certainly going to have a lot to pray about tonight. You know, so it's, it's kind of beautiful. It, it puts you in this stance of awareness, of noticing. And I think I we're, know. there actually, there was a, the person I'm thinking of, I don't know if you know, there's an Indian Jesuit named Anthony DeMello. Do you know that right, name at all? Right, yes. And Anthony DeMello, actually, this story was in another book I did, and they used it in the film Soul. And it's a story of a little fish who is going around, swimming around, asking everybody where, where the ocean is. 
It's a great story. Right. Right. It goes from place to place. This is in the film. And finally, he meets a fish who says, the ocean? Well, you're in it. And he says, well, no, this is this is not the ocean. I'm looking for something special. And so I think when we our lives, you know, are, are swimming around in God and God's presence, and yet we, we don't notice. And so once we're like the little fish, once we're invited to notice, you know, what we're in and the environment we're in, it, it, it changes things. It makes things a lot different. So yeah. when you know every night that you're going to be sort of noticing these things with God, it makes you a more aware person from during the day. Yeah, it's beautiful. Jim, I don't know if you've encountered or studied this uh, science of NDEs, you know, near-death experiences. I have a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things in those which you are um, guessing aware of is this life review mm. uh, phenomenon that many of these people report mm. that they have their whole life flash mm. in front of them and they're in a non-judgmental way just to experience and see what happened and what were the rights and the wrongs and all of that. And, you know, it appears to me that what you've just talked about here in terms of like, this is going to come up in my exam is sort of like that awareness <laughs> being brought to one's daily consciousness right. rather than just thinking of it as a one final summation at the end of the life. Yeah, what a great, that's a great analogy. I'm, I'm thinking of all these things that I, I could have put in my book and could have quoted you on. That's absolutely right. And it is a day-to-day -day thing. And, and in the process, you know, you do, you to prepare yourself for that final review. I would also say there are examinations of conscience that people do, for example, at the end of the year. Like I'm going to just yeah. kind of go back and see where things were. You know, the end of a relationship, the end of a job. I sometimes say to people before they're moving away from a job or, uh, you know, moving physically or someone's dying in their lives or something to say, do an examine with that, with your mother's life or your father's life or with this job, it's often jobs or this place that you've lived in, do an examine and say goodbye, right? But really kind of call to mind those things. And it really, it can be very healing for people. I'll tell you a quick story. My mom moved out of our family house about seven or eight years ago. And a friend of mine said, do a little examine where you go through the rooms of your house with God and you try to see the kinds of things that happen in those rooms. It was really powerful. You know, my bedroom, my kitchen, living room, and, and just, just travel through those rooms. And in the imaginative prayer, this is imaginative prayer. Uh, I remember leaving the house and the door was open, which was very powerful for me because I thought I can always go back in my memory, which we can. But that right. was a kind of examine and, and it was healing. And it was, you know, a lot of tears were shed. And But I don't think we allow ourselves to do that, to really take stock and, and look interiorly. And because I think God wants to help us see these beautiful things that have happened in the past and also help to heal us and help us move on. So yeah, it's hard to pivot away from this, from any of these prayers, but sure. certainly, certainly this one. I did want to ask if you're open to also talking to us a little bit about uh, nature prayer. Sure. I also thought it was beautiful, especially in today's time where, you know, a lot of people are pulling out from being in cities and going mm. and living in simpler environments, perhaps more, you know, more in touch with nature. Well, yeah, I mean, I have a whole chapter called Nature Prayer, which is my own little, it's a very simple way of talking about it. And I look at different ways that uh, nature can help you pray. I mean, simply just being in nature can calm you. I talk about a study about being near green spaces. Nature can give you images of God. I think that's one of the most uh, helpful things for me. So for example, the ocean has always been a great image of God for me. I mean, you know, the ocean is not God and God is not the ocean, but in its vastness and, you know, literally unfathomable, I find it very helpful to just think of that, that immensity as an image of God. The nature can help us to see the God's variety, the way that God works 
you know, the, the sort of variety of creation and that can help us understand God more. The ways that God, um, you know, even learning about a particular aspect of nature. I'm, a, I'm sort of a birder. I like birds a lot. And that just, you know, the, the sort of creativity of God. You know, and one of the great things in Pope Francis's encyclical called Laudato Si, which is about the environment and connectivity, this thing sort of blew me away. He talked about Jesus enjoying nature, which I frankly never thought of. I mean, I know Jesus obviously lived in nature and he used nature in his parables and whatnot, the mustard seed and the birds and the and the weeds and the you know birds of the air, but that he enjoyed it. You know, he enjoyed nature. He enjoyed looking at things. And um, so, so to, to be able to see that, just enjoying it as a spiritual practice, enjoying it and reverencing it. So I find that uh, as soon as I am in nature on, on a retreat, that I calm down and I'm more attentive to what's going on inside of me. And so it's, I think it's essential. I mean, here I am talking about it from the, you know, from my New York uh, Jesuit community where my, my room looks out on a brick wall. So I think that makes me enjoy nature even more. Yeah. I want to read a quote from your excerpt from your book. You know, you say, when we are in nature among the trees, looking into a pond, gazing at the ocean tides, contemplating the clouds or standing dumbfounded before a mountain, we are encountering something created directly by God. And so the distance between God and us has decreased. Yeah, I make that distinction between, say, a work of art, which is a, a beautiful way to encounter God, or a, a symphony, or, you know, a pop song, or something like that, a house, you know, something that's beautiful and speaks to you about God, that's created by human beings and nature, which I think is sort of, in a sense, unmediated. This is something that God created, you know, like the clouds or uh, an ocean, right? And so it's a bit of a, for me, a more direct connection with God. This is something that that is part of God's handiwork, you know, and I believe in evolution and all those things, but I think it's more unmediated. And I think we connect to that. We um, There is something about seeing, trying to think of something beautiful, I guess like the Mona Lisa or something like that, that's kind of banal, but seeing you know one of your favorite paintings or hearing a beautiful symphony that you love and seeing a sunset. It's just different. I think people will recognize the difference. There's, there's something added to it. And I think what we're responding to is that this is really part of God's handiwork. I had the blessing of going with my family to Botswana for mm-hmm. uh, an African safari uh, a few years back. And, uh, you know, I'd gone there with a great sense of hunger to experience, you know, the flora and the fauna and the phenomena, you know, the phenomena mm-hmm. aspect of it. But actually what really gripped all of us when we were there was what you just said. It felt like this was God's land. I mean, this was the way it had been conceived and imagined by God to kind of put, you know, the earth in the hands of humanity and, you know, say, treat us well, treat me well, you know. And the last thing I just wanted to offer is also a sense of, oh, wow, there's so much genius and intelligence, yeah. beauty, but also intelligence in nature. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was in East Africa for two years working with refugees. And so one of my favorite movies is Out of Africa. And I think this is in the book too, but there's a great scene where uh, Dennis Finch Hatton, played by Robert Redford, takes up uh, Isaac Dennison, who's Meryl Streep. And, you know, again, this is based on her book, in a plane for the first time. And she sees what you saw, which is the savanna and the animals and the, the trees and the, the wildlife and everything. And she says it's a great scene and a great part of the book. Where she says, ah, yes, I see. This is the way it was meant to be seen. Yeah, I get it, basically. And it's it's beautiful moment of revelation and recognition. And I think, again, you know, I would say so many of us have those moments. And I would imagine many listeners have had those moments, even if it's something simpler, like just being at the seashore. Like, yeah, I see. I feel it. I get it. But again, they're not encouraged to talk about it. And I would say that kind of experience that you had and the kind of experience that many people have in nature is the beginning of prayer. It is one way that God is inviting us into prayer. And I think. All we need to do is to say yes. 
Yeah, beautiful. I want to make sure that we pay homage to one of the most uh, well-adopted and traditional forms of prayer, which is road prayer. And mm -hmm. what you do in this book is talk to us, not just about the fact that it is there for us to use, but also invite us to approach it with a sense of awareness and freshness and devotion that sometimes in the mechanics of road prayer gets lost. Can you can you talk about that for me? Sure. So road prayer, formal prayer, standardized prayers, what I'm talking about are prayers like the Our Father, Hail Mary, the Psalms, um, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, all, all the kinds of prayers that people are familiar with, you know, from their childhood or that most people are familiar with. And a lot of times, as I say in the book, they get denigrated. Oh, that's a, that's very childish. That's just a, you know, you got to move past that. The rosary is another kind of rote prayer. And yet they are very effective. Oftentimes they express things that we couldn't express any better. They're wonderful to have in an emergency, right? You can, I mean, who doesn't fall back on, you know, like when there's bumpiness on a flight, you know, Hail Mary, the act of contrition, the Our Father. And so I think it's important not to denigrate them. One of my favorite stories is, and I have it in the book, a priest who was studying to be a spiritual director, which is someone that helps people with their prayer. And he went back to see his mother who was doing the rosary, you know, which is a real rote prayer. I mean, it's, you know, Hail Marys and Our Fathers for the Catholics out there. And the priest said, well, I'm going to teach you a different way of praying. And she said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, the rosary, that's, you know, a little elementary. And she said, well, I like praying the rosary. And he said, well, why do you like praying the rosary? And she said, when I pray the rosary, I look at God and God looks at me. And he realized that her prayer was a lot more you know, richer than his was. And it was wrong for him to sort of dismiss that. And so in the book, I talk about the value of road prayers, but also saying that, you know, it's inviting people who may be familiar just with road prayers to look at other prayers as well. I think the key is openness in the spiritual life. Yeah, beautiful. There is one, I guess, like formal prayer, which forgive me if I'm forgetting, it might be in the book, perhaps it's not there. And maybe you can speak to it. I'm reminded of my dear friend, Arthur Brooks, who is a devout Catholic, and he talked recently about his pilgrimage in north of Spain, you know, this walking pilgrimage of 100 miles. And, um, you know, this notion of pilgrimage, mm. this notion of going to certain environments and places that are infused with the spiritual aura based on perhaps years and perhaps centuries of uh, deep devotional connection that people have felt with mm -hmm. either saints or a life or, or just a confluence of people who have come there. You know, it's mm -hmm. something very big in India, you know, where I grew up. It's mm. a rich tradition in the Christian world as well. Can you speak about that, the relationship between prayer and, and pilgrimage? Sure. Well, as you say, it's a, a trip to a place. Usually it's something that is, you know, connected with some spiritual practice or spiritual event people take trips to in the Holy Land, to Rome, to Compostela, as you were saying with uh, Arthur Brooks, but all throughout the world. In India, you know, different places that are, you know, different religious traditions. I think part of it is microcosm of life. Life is a pilgrimage. It's a journey. But I think what happens on pilgrimage is that we are removed from our normal day-to-day -day life. We're sometimes inconvenienced. Pilgrimage is usually uncomfortable. You have lack of sleep. And so we in that state, I think, are more vulnerable, which means that I think we're more open to God's sort of entering into our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that God sort of wants us to be uncomfortable all the time. It's just that when we're vulnerable and our defenses are down and we're away from our usual routine, I think God can break in a lot more and people find that. People also, I mean, I've experienced that when I go on pilgrimage, that happens. You know, my prayers are a little deeper. It's different. I notice things more. And you were talking about the examine and that kind of end of life review and the NDEs. I think on a pilgrimage that what we're doing is we are orienting ourselves towards God, that there's a goal. And so almost everything is focused on that goal. And that makes us, that heightens our awareness. 
you know that you're on a pilgrimage. Like if you're walking to Compostela or you're you're in Jerusalem or you're in Lourdes or something, you know, you know, you all you have to do is look around to say, I am on this spiritual journey. And that really centers the mind as well. It really makes you aware of what's going on. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you so much. Look, I'm going to go back to calling you Father Martin. <laughs> you know, you're kind enough to offer that I should just call you Jim. And, and uh, I value that, you know, but at the same time, I feel just a sense of grace and just uh, gratitude for being in your presence today and all that you're bringing to our listeners as well, Father Martin. So thank you so much. I want to maybe propose ending with the final act in a sense of what you have in the book as well. Something that I also gained a lot of inspiration from Mother Teresa on that, you know, she talks a lot about love and her whole life is about love, but she talks about putting love into action. And so you talk about putting prayer into action. Yeah. So it's not just about our relationship with God, as important as that is. I mean, it's not just about God's encounter with you and your encounter with God. It's also for other people. I think prayer should always move us to some sort of action, if it's being kinder, if it's being more centered. But, you know, it also has a, a social dimension. And so, for example, something as simple as, you know, I'm moved when I see a story about a refugee or I read a story about a migrant at the border and I'm very moved and I think about that. Or, you know, I pass a person in the street who's homeless and I pray about that later during my exam and, and I'm moved. And you say, well, where is that emotion coming from? Well, that's probably God moving you to do something, right? So I think prayer should always lead us to some sort of action. Now, that's doesn't mean we look at it from a sort of functional point of view, like I pray in order that this might happen. But I think that we need to be open to that sense of activity. So I think, yeah, so to pay attention to those calls that come through our prayer, they're as loud almost as that uh, phone that, that just rang. Yeah, thank you. Father Martin, as you look forward in your vocation and life journey, what's your big dream? Oh, boy, I just want to be a good Jesuit. I'm doing a lot of work now with the LGBTQ community. So I'm praying that that goes well. But I, I just want to be a good Jesuit and see where God leads me. So thank you so much, uh, Father Martin. This has been so enriching, so inspiring, so uplifting, so much for us to take. I hope, folks, that you were, as you were listening, also having a notepad with you. And if not, go back and listen to it again. You know, get Father Martin's book. And uh, all the best to you in your path of prayer. Father Martin, I'll, I'll leave you with the last word here for our listeners. I would just say to trust anything that you feel in terms of a desire to be with God that came up in this podcast is a reflection of God's desire for you. And so one of my favorite lines I saw on a plaque in a retreat house that said, that which you seek is seeking you. 